take first watch. of the First Watch Podcast. I'm Zach, and I'm here with Cole. How are you? It feels like the end of the world outside. How about you? Uh, much less like that, to be honest. <laughs> Our winter weather went from freezing cold to now it's like in the 60s and 70s. I've just been sitting outside reading in the sunshine. Is that not what you're doing in Los Angeles? No. I thought that's all you did out there. Right now <laughs> we're swimming, but thanks for the concern. <laughs> <laughs> and then also today we've got joining us Riley for the first time in the new year, 2024. How are you? I'm great. Great to be back. Always happy to be on. Today, we are talking about a movie that's been on my radar to want to do an episode about probably since we did Jean Dielman last year Mm. by Chantal Ackerman, and that is Marguerite Duras' India Song. Probably one of the more obscure titles we've ever done as a main feature, so I'm really looking forward to talking about it in that regard to kind of shed a little light on that. And uh, talk about Dura as a writer, as a director, an artist that I've been exploring both as a novelist and as a filmmaker over the course of like the last two years. So I think there's a lot to talk about there. That's pretty interesting. But before we get there, we'll go ahead and start with Riley. Have you been able to catch up with anything lately? Yeah, I managed to catch a couple of screenings the other week, both films you've already talked about, but I'll keep it brief. Andrew High's new film, All of Us Strangers, much talked about, been a lot of press and the press tour for Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal around this movie has been quite <laughs> kind of intense. AKA the Tortured Man Club or something, right? Yeah. How many Swifties are going to watch this movie now? <laughs> So I was fortunate enough to avoid a lot of the media circus around it. I went into this one completely blind. I won't even spoil it, but the central conceit of the movie, which is revealed 10 or 20 minutes into it, Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that. So I had the luxury of a purely blind experience. Yeah, I was really struck with it. Andrew High is one of my favorite working filmmakers. I've been a fan of his ever since Weekend. For every film he's put out successively has kind of knocked me back in a big way. Shout out Lean on Pete, really underrated movie there as well. But all of his movies have been great. This is no exception, although I probably connect with it maybe a little bit less than the three films preceding it, though it's electrifying and emotionally affecting and led by stellar performances as are all his films and then you know maybe the strength of the acting is really the thing you would point to here as being what distinguishes this movie of his in particular although obviously 45 years has a great couple of central performances too but Mm. really struck by the small ensemble the four chief actors in this film who basically carry the entire thing thought all performances were stellar particularly struck with Claire Foy as has been remarked upon a fantastic performance from an actress who feels like hasn't really gotten the opportunity to flex how good she can be. Nice to see her in a role that really gave her some muscle. If you're familiar with Andrew High's cinema, many of his films are deeply queer or at the very least about social isolation, kind of trying to integrate yourself within a society or trying to integrate yourself within an institution that feels foreign to you. I think the thing about this film is that its first 20 or 30 minutes are so strong that it does peter off a little bit from there once the you know the general direction which it's going becomes clear and it isn't exactly a film that has many surprises from that point 
it really has an electrifying first half, I would say, or first third, especially for me, not knowing the context for what that was going to be. And then the performances carry it from there, but it ultimately, I think, has a bit of a fumble towards the end. But I really enjoyed it. As ever, with High, I'm struck with his beautiful, tasteful formalism, his penchant for dreaminess and the slight twinges of the surreal. I actually took the time to read the novel Strangers by Taichi Yamada. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting thing, I think, because like you, I went into All of Us Strangers knowing almost nothing about the concept, except that Andrew Scott's character and Paul Mescal's character were like nearby each other and were maybe going to be romantic interests. That's about the extent of what I knew. But afterwards, I talked to somebody who had seen the film before and also read the book. And the book is a horror novel. It's a Japanese horror novel that probably when you read it, like when I read it, it comes across like any number of folkloric Japanese horror movies from like the 1950s, mm. in a sense, but updated to a modern context because it's from the 80s, I believe. And so there's this really interesting thing that I think that High's doing where he's taking something that is like purely in genre mode and then peeling that or reining that back so far into this world that's much more kind of subtle and subdued. But I think that's where that ending comes from, where you suddenly get like jarred into this other thing, mm. because that's being brought forward from a place where it's a little bit more lurid and pulpy, mm. gory. Yeah, it's strange. I'm not sure whether I would like the film even more if the whole film had been tonally the way it is in its first half, or if the whole film had been tonally the way it is towards its end, where it kind of tips its head a little bit more to its origin. I feel like a kind of domestic horror, but with a kind of placidness and presentation, might have elevated my experience. It's so tender in a way, but it never quite gets into, you know, maybe like a Kiyoshi Kurosawa where it's blending that drama into something that's really unnerving or, you know, yeah. something feels mm. really amiss. And I don't really think it's going for that, but I think you almost detect a missing ingredient. You're like, something's, mm. something's not clicking about the way that that just goes from one thing to the next. Yeah probably a fair assessment but i felt much more positively about the film i went to see the very next night which is yorgos lentimos's poor things his heavy awards contender it's quite funny to think of lentimos as a sort of oscar favorite no pun intended <laughs> filmmaker whose movies very quickly generate a certain level of press and popularity on that level lentimos yes wes anderson no <laughs> And look, I'll be real, I'm a big fan of Yorgos Lanthimos. I have been ever since I saw Dogtooth when I was far too young to be watching Dogtooth. <laughs> uh, it left a profound impression on me. And I've always enjoyed not just his, you know, uh, darkly sort of witty, satirical style, but also his love of awkwardness, his love of kind of pushing into the red boundaries of what's socially acceptable and kind of sort of lingering there. Yorgos Lanthimos movies are kind of like art house curb your enthusiasm <laughs> in some ways, pushing against what's socially tactful, what's culturally tactful, and sort of like finding something true and meaningful about humanity in there. So I was specifically taken with poor things because well, really it is the central performance of Emma Stone. It's how incredibly well she realizes this character who is essentially in a constant state of accelerated development, developing from birth neurologically. It's kind of difficult to think of, at least I couldn't think of a performance like this that has had to do this kind of thing before. 
I can think of one that I know that you're familiar with, and that's Alicia Vikander uh, in I, I Am Easy to Find. Yeah, okay, that's a good Mike one. Mike Mills. I forgot about that one. She's playing that character from birth to death. Yeah. Although, given the kind of filmmaker Lanthimos Moss is, the material that he's working with as well, great screenplay by Tony McNamara, based on the book by Alistair Gray, I want to say. Yep, that's the boy. Scottish author. Vastly different source material and a vastly different tone because of the creative minds at hand. And so this particular iteration of this idea was so idiosyncratic and so striking in a way that I really resonated with and particularly the extreme self-determination that Bella Baxter has, this total state of complete self-creation. Bella develops herself and realizes herself and kind of pushes towards an actualization that's completely outside anyone's image of her. I found to be profoundly moving, if I'm perfectly honest. It really struck me. Again, so much of it is because the film's tone is so broad, goofy, and surreal. All of his movies are funny. I would term almost all of them as comedies, like put them into the comedy genre in one way or another. Mm -hmm. But this is like easily the most going for laughs type of a like you said broad comedy mm, yeah whether it's physical slapstick and like the goofy dances like he does a goofy dance number in like all of his movies but there's just something about this one that kind of plays a little bit more that way and and look as someone who's been a fan of Lanthimos for a while it was kind of like a big exhalation for me to see a film of his with such a kind of it's obviously got an anarchic spirit as his movies often do but there's a real euphoria and this performance, because his previous movies derive so much of their humor from pathetic, you know, inner collapse of utterly hollow characters who are just completely besotten by their inadequacies. Whereas this film is just like so bright and funky, and it just pushes forward with that attitude. And it feels so refreshing from a filmmaker like Lanthimos, whose movies can be so dour, like always laced with that jet black humor, but often really really dour. So I really loved it. It really took me by surprise how much I loved it. We did an episode on The Favorite last year, mm -hmm. and that's a movie I've now seen, I don't even know, like six or seven times. It's kind of a yeah. high number. Uh, it's really funny and I really enjoy it. But the thing that struck me the last time, the reason why it rises up and is my favorite is because there's this pathos to it. And I think that that's an example of what you're saying. That's a cynical, dour movie and it fits into that. But what strikes me is that after so much kind of frosty coldness from a movie like Dogtooth, there's like real feeling in there that you can kind of warm up to. And then the coldness kicks in and douses you and everything. There's just mm. a dynamic nature to it because of that. So I can totally see being responsible. For the, the favorite is also, I would say, still my favorite, Lanthimos yeah. as well, for essentially the same reasons. Ferociously yeah. high wire film that has these central performances that are so dynamic and so thrilling. I would like to see what Deborah Davis might have mm -hmm. brought to this particular screenplay, mm. just because that favorite script that was, I think that's also Tony. Yeah. You can tell a man wrote four things, and frankly, that was the biggest disappointment for me, was that it didn't have that other touch to it, the yeah. way that like, the favorite does, for example. The screenplay is very quippy, mm -hmm. and it is the kind of thing that I could see people growing tired of. And it is a long movie. I mean, I, don't, yeah. I didn't find the movie to be overlong myself, but I can understand how that particular style can already have its limits just as a prospect. What I will say is that the surely the surely masculine voice of, of McNamara, I think, is so balanced by 
the viscera of Emma Stone's performance, the energy that she brings to it all. It feels as though everything, every atom is emanating from that. And it's so centralized and so electric. It's weird to say this. I think it might be my favorite performance of the year. It landed in my top five for that category. Admittedly, there's personal biases factoring into that because it's a performance that I resonate with on a personal level for a whole bunch of reasons as well. Mm -hmm. I've just never seen a performance like that. Uh, And it's kind of hard to be more specific than that. There's a specific moment I remember sticking out to me. It's the I'm pretty sure it's when she first meets McCandless. And I mean, it's like a little girl. It's like looking at a toddler, Mm -hmm. the way that she's so animated and everything. I think one of the reasons why the duration kind of wore is because the performance doesn't necessarily progress in a strictly linear way. There's like a lot of the baby talk, little girl stuff throughout like all of the travel. And then it's like Paris happens and everything starts accelerating, Mm -hmm. which, you know, puberty, there's ways to read it. But I think it's a high wire act of a performance. Like, it's incredibly yeah, impressive. It's absolutely fearless, especially for an A-list actress. For sure. Yeah. I'll run through mine real quick. Jonathan Glazer, Texas Theater, ran a couple of his movies, including Earth on 35mm, nice. starring Nicole Kidman, Danny Houston, which I just wanted to shout out because it's just a fucking hilariously fun movie to watch with an audience when you can tell about a third to half of them don't know what this movie's about or what's about to happen <laughs> because naturally the basic premise of the film is uh, it gets people reacting. But just a very funny movie. Good to get to see it in theaters. I caught up with it recently, I think. Well, not super recently, but I think Cole and I both watched it around the time that Anne Hesch passed away. We did our Van Sant Psycho episode. Yes. Because she has a small but very important role in the film birth. Mm -hmm. Um, Watch that. It's on the Criterion channel. It's the riot. If you go from that to zone, it's a pretty, it's a fun contrast. Although you can tell the same guy made them. (laughs) I finally caught up with A.V. Rockwell's 1001, Mm. which... I liked. And then also with Ford Jefferson's American Fiction is the last Best Picture nominee that I had to catch up with. Mm -hmm. So I've just been doing a little bit of cleanup here and there. 1001, nice drama. I thought American Fiction was a little toothless as a satire, which I think I kind of knew was going to be true when I saw it. It's really weak. It's a good drama, but the screenplay I found really uneven. So even the drama parts of it kind of started falling away. I really mm. like Sterling K. Brown, but he's not quite enough to pull it through for me. I did, yeah. It's not quite my least favorite best pick. I probably like it more than Maestro. I definitely like it more than Barbie, but it's, you know, eh, <laughs> it's about what I thought it was going to be. I'm surprised it's, I'm not surprised that the critics like it. I'm surprised that it's such an award starling. I am not surprised by that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One that I wanted to spend a little bit more time on is a movie from a couple years back. I think it debuted at Sundance 2021, and that's called I Was a Simple Man, which is an American film made in Hawaii. It is directed by Christopher Makoto Yogi. It's a little bit tricky to try and describe the early reviews of it. I remember people were comparing it to Where Seitakul Joe and his style. That was obviously the same year Memoria came out. So I think that was just like on people's minds. Although I didn't really think that that was exactly the right comp. I think there are some spiritual and thematic comparisons to be made between the two within the concept of nature, reincarnation. But I Was a Simple Man follows the story of one man named Masao, who is an elderly man, has some children who are mostly adults. His wife passed away shortly after the annexation, not after the annexation, but after the uh after Hawaii became a United State in 1950. 
you see a little bit of his memory and a little bit of his past, but for the most part, the film takes place after he gets a medical diagnosis that he is dying of a disease. And the movie is about the process of death. It's about the process of this man dying and coming to terms with that and reckoning with some of the complicated family dynamics that he leaves behind that tie into the unique political nature of Hawaii, both as a territory that became annexed and became one of the United States, but also because the main character is ethnically Japanese, his wife is ethnically Chinese, and obviously there's a lot of different layers to that relationship throughout the 20th century due to the Pacific War, due to both of those different country's relationship with America and the way that that has progressed into now the 21st century. So it's a very politically charged, a very spiritually charged kind of movie, you know, that I thought was solid, but then like the last 20 minutes just kind of blew me away. Really, really stuck with me. And I would recommend that if you have the opportunity to catch it, because I think it's quite unique. You know, I don't think I've ever seen a movie from Hawaii before. I've seen movies set in Hawaii, seen movies about Hawaii with Hawaiian characters, but I think this is the first time I've ever seen, you know, a Hawaiian director talking about that culture and certain misgivings and things like that. So I think that that made it a pretty interesting, fresh experience for me. And then the final thing that I wanted to shout out in terms of five stars, got to go see a performance that I've seen before annually. There's a musician called David D. Donato, who I believe is from Austin, Texas, who does rescores of silent cinema, such as The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Sferatu. And every year in January, he performs an original score that he composed for the Kino Lorber Complete Metropolis, directed by Fritz Lang. So I've gone and seen that show twice, which is just a dude wailing on a double-necked guitar for the duration of Fritz Lang's Metropolis. And it's just incredible movie. Very little to say about it, but that's just a great live show. And I wanted to kind of reminisce a little bit because experiences like that are really cool i've i don't know if you guys have ever gotten the opportunity to see a silent movie with live scoring i've done it for chaplain's the kid i wish (laughs) i've done it for man of the movie camera and it's really exciting it's a really fun cool engaging way to experience movies i think with metropolis particularly because it's a science fiction text it's very futuristic in its images and designs having modern music to go with it is a really nice little you know, like Giorgio Moroda, the producer, did a cut, a colorized version of Metropolis with his you know, 80s synth. So this is like that, but you don't have to watch a shitty cut that's <laughs> had the colors messed with. You can just watch Metropolis. Haven't seen a silent film with a live music accompaniment, but when I was a teenager, getting really into movies, mm. one of my favorite silent films was Man with a Movie Camera. And I remember watching multiple <laughs> versions of it with multiple different accompaniments yeah and i became so obsessed with the cinematic orchestra's score for that that i bought that <laughs> album and i would just like listen to it all the time i did that with not the obsession bit but i did that with pandora's box directed mm. by pops last mm. year because that i think the dvd comes with like four or five yeah. different scores on that one mm. i think they're just doing a 4k restoration of that movie that's going to be doing the theatrical run it's a cool way of interfacing with history in a certain way, like the, the fact that you can kind of take silent films and reimagine the soundtrack, reinterpret the mm, soundtrack, right. have new takes. Because it acts as a sound mix mm. in Metropolis. You know, there are points where what you're hearing is a cymbal crash or a hi-hat during scenes where something is genuinely like clashing or banging. And so it starts to act like much more than just music. It like gives mm. it, you know, a silent film something close to what we would consider a modern sound mix. Mm. I think of The Passion of Joan of Arc there a lot, because that is a movie where Dreyer never picked an official score. 
there's one that's called Angels of Light, which is like the most iconic and known one, but you can also listen to one like, actually I'm thinking of the Phantom Carriage has one by the guy from Sun O, but anyway. There's a lot of cool Criterion silent scores because you get like a dude from Gold Frap playing a guitar. I think it's the weird. last time I saw Passion of Joan of Arc, I watched it with no soundtrack. Ooh. Just silent. I found that to be really affecting yeah. for that film in particular. I do love that some silent films have these new modern reinterpretations, rescores, mm. adding to a film that we would kind of never deem really acceptable in any other context. But because these are these historical artifacts that don't always have recorded scores or clear, you know, definitive scores as well, it becomes a way of interacting with the film. Yeah, I think if you took something like Kabiria, which Cole and I both watched and talked about last year, and you put like some sort of contemporary Italian fucking stoner metal band metal band while the fucking volcano's going i think that that would play i think people would like that and suddenly you have this revitalization of something that is itself very exciting but you're just able to kind of draw out that drama Mm -hmm. make it fresh yeah that is it for me there's a couple but i'm gonna let cole tee off on them and i'll just kind of come in for the assist (laughs) uh i'm talking uh... about a cat Fucking movie. But mainly what I've been doing is going on a rampage through all of the Oscar nominees, all the way down to the shorts and best original song, which is why I watched Flaming Hot, the movie about the guy who supposedly invented hot Cheetos. Directed by Eva Longoria. And it turns out the whole story's a lie. And that's why there was like a White House scandal about this because they showed the movie at the White <laughs> House and they were like, hey, this movie's a lie. Why are you showing this to people? <laughs> I love imagining that as Eva Longoria's passion project that she's worked for so long <laughs> to get up off the ground is her hot Cheeto biopic. What on earth? Oh, God. That is factually inaccurate. <laughs> Print the legend. <laughs> It's a total nothing of a movie. The movie's only nominated for Best Original Song because Diane Warren every fucking year gets a nom, but she never wins. So what are we doing here? It's probably the worst song she's ever written that's gotten a nomination. It's just Becky G yelling for three minutes. And it's like, all right. (laughs) Even worse than that is Golda, which is nominated for Best Makeup and Hairstyling. Uh, This is a biopic of Golda Meir, Prime Minister of Israel, particularly during the 1973 crisis where it was a six-day war, but Egypt and Syria and all that. And the movie focuses on her actions during that war and in particular why she was so aggressive and got so many people killed. The thing is that the movie does not interrogate her at all. That's a strange decision. The movie is purely on her side, 100%. And I know this movie had to be in production at the same time as Oppenheimer, but it's edited and shot like Oppenheimer. But (laughs) if the budget was like two bucks and a pack of cigarettes. It's like the TikTok montage. God, it is absolutely wretched. Roy Schneider is there as Henry Kissinger for some reason. It's like a supporting character. <laughs> Doesn't it just break your heart? We have a lot of pointless biopics nowadays, but mm-hmm. especially when there's such potential for a really rich interrogative text with a figure like Golda Meir, who is so controversial, so mm-hmm. three-dimensional, like so yeah. just embittered. I mean, frankly, that would take a movie that would have to be not directed by a Zionist. Yeah. You know, such is the nature of things. I can't imagine any Western country making the right version of that movie. And I wanted to take a second to actually mention this is directed by Guy Nativ, a man who directed maybe the worst Oscar nominee I've ever seen. 
twice. It's it's down there. Why it, have you seen it twice? No, 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 no. Because he's got two different movies called Skin. There's a short film. Oh, God. Yeah, oh, that exactly. movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's this guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fuck. I've not thought about that in a minute. There's Skin, the feature film which runs 110 minutes, and then there's Skin, the short film, which runs 20 minutes. Yeah. They're both ass. And this movie also made me think, is Helen Mirren the best actress with the worst filmography? I would have to think about it. I was just going through some with some friends earlier where it's like, wow, this is truly dire. There's truly nothing going on here. Because I really love Helen Mirren, but she's been in some shitty, shitty movies. Yeah. Yeah. And then I took a quick little break from the Oscar nominations just to watch some slock. I watched ISS, that space thriller about a war breaking out between the United States and the Russian Federation down on Earth. And it's about the astronauts and the cosmonauts up in the ISS. And they both receive orders from their respective countries to take the station at all costs. <laughs> it's a January thriller, so you get exactly what you paid for. Ariana DeBose is maybe not shooting for Helen Mirren's level of quality just yet, <laughs> but she's gunning for that filmography quality belt God. hard. Someone help her. What are we doing? You win an Oscar and then you go off and do this and wish and and we'll, we'll get to that one later. But I also had a Saturday off, so I was like, what the hell? Saw Wonka, bad, mm. Chalamet miscast. Taking Paul King's strictly bullshit onto Roald Dahl is a horrible idea. Yeah, that's a mean bastard of a writer. This doesn't really fit. Yeah. Did you think Chalamet was just miscast, like he was pointed in the wrong direction? Or would you say that he was bad? Only really been curious about this as a gauge for his star potential, because I feel like he's still... Yeah, he's definitely... It's up in the air with him. Yeah. It's a little too try-hard, but at the same time, it's not crazy enough. Yeah. He just needed to be like 20% crazier. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to Dune Part 2 for many reasons, but I think Austin Butler might eat his ass up. I don't know. <laughs> the vibe I've gotten from Chalamet Wonka is more Johnny Depp than Gene Wilder. Ooh. The premise seems... I've seen people make, particularly using Daniel Day-Lewis from Gangs of New York, but I've seen them making Daniel Plainview jokes, and it's like, yeah, I mean, the origin story of Wonka is just like, gentlemen, I'm a chocolate man. Here's how I built my chocolate empire. I don't fucking care, yeah. man. That's just like a deeply uninteresting angle on Willy Wonka when, if I may just take a second, I'm not like a huge acolyte of the Gene Wilder version exactly. Mm-hmm. But if you think about how that movie operates, don't you take 30 minutes to focus on all the kids, to focus on the golden tickets and the joy and the mystery, and then he somersaults into the picture and yeah. takes it over by force. The whole point is that you don't know the origin, that he's like this mysterious fucking recluse. Yeah, no, the movie is ridiculously overcranched with all these side characters that's not needed. Fucking Wonka lore. Yes. The one bright spot was that Hugh Grant looked like he wanted to kill himself the entire time. <laughs> Likely thing. Plays an Oompa Loompa. Looking just miserable. He knows what he's doing. He's probably <laughs> had more fun with that press tour than anyone else. <laughs> yeah, probably. But yeah, I mean, it's funny that that ended up being the big Christmas hit of the year. Yeah. What was the competition? Uh, Aquaman. Yeah. Which even that is like barely avoiding embarrassment by probably crawling to like 450. Yeah. And then Wonka is probably going to settle around 600. Yeah. But I did manage to see a good movie. I watched a new release, Sometimes I Think About Dying, directed by Rachel Lambert. It stars Daisy Ridley as Fran, a quiet office worker in the Pacific Northwest. She's a complete introvert wallflower, doesn't talk to any of her co-workers, doesn't participate in anything. And then one 
day, one of her coworkers retires and a new guy comes in. And he's the first person who can kind of get her to crack open a little bit. And you kind of get this will they and won't they dynamic. But it's also, is she going to open up and admit to her depression? Because you see these visions she has in her head. Uh, sometimes she just thinks about dying. I thought it was pretty funny. A lot of great workplace office humor, a particular one meeting where they're all going around sharing their favorite food just gets very cringe inducing in a very funny way. I would call it my favorite Daisy Ridley performance so far now that she's escaped the clutches of the mouse right. and the lightsabers and all that nonsense. So I'm excited to see where she keeps on going in a non-franchise direction. The last two things I want to close out on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Five stars. We watched Strange Days. Great fucking movie. Oh, yeah. Fucking rocks. Yeah, we just did our episode for our favorite first watches of the year, which included that. So can yeah. listen to a little bit more yeah. discussion. Great episode. Watched it with the same group that made me watch Welcome to Morrowind the other day. That's a really good movie <laughs> for the recent release of those fucking Apple goggles. <laughs> Don't hand me Apple goggles unless Lenny Nero gives them to me in the back of a fucking limo. Driven oh, by Angela Bassett. God. <laughs> but the last two things I want to close out on are... One movie that got a push for Oscar contention from everybody's favorite fixer, Francis Fisher, who, you know, worked her magic last year. Unfortunately, this time it didn't work. Ava DuVernay's new film, Origin, which is uh, it's about a writer going on her research trip based on a nonfiction book. It's cast by Isabel Wilkerson, which is this whole thesis about how caste systems are the great uniting cause of human suffering, you know, American slavery and the treatment of Jews and others in World War II by the Nazis, and in particular, the Indian caste system, where she starts to connect all the dots. Uh, I fell asleep in this. I haven't read cast. It won. Did it win the Pulitzer? I think it did. I'm going to double check that. Uh, That sounds like something that would win a Pulitzer. It's not the fucking Nobel. I know that. I mean, my God, even the Nobel Peace Prize has some standards. Anyway, it's a relatively acclaimed book, but it's one that has come under quite a bit of scrutiny, particularly from leftist critics. Maybe about a week, two weeks before I saw the movie, there was a big fucking hit piece from when that book originally came out. That was basically like, yeah, so the thesis of this is kind of rot just doesn't really work. And I don't want to come too strongly onto that. You can read on your own whether you want to or not that book, the criticism of that book, but it made me quite apprehensive to come into this. I think it's fair to say that Ava DuVernay's career has had a real focus on message films. And I don't even really want to put her down in that way. I think, you know, When They See Us, 13th, even Selma, these are all movies that are about subject matters that are historical relevant, urgent in some contexts. Origin fits her MO in the sense that it is very sociological in nature and that it is very political in nature. Mm -hmm. This is one of the most boneheaded fucking movies I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Real bozo shit. The opening scene of this made me want to leave. I mean, let's get it out of the way. The movie opens with the murder of Trayvon Martin. Right. And it's presented as like the catalyst for breaking open Wilkerson's writer's block. The thing that pushes this all into motion, this process of discovery, writing the book, the events of the film. Right. And I mean, I don't think that it's necessarily wrong for a writer of a sociological nature to be inspired by a real life act of violence. But the way that it is presented here is catastrophically tasteless. 
to me. For me, the movie reached peak tastelessness when it got to that 40-minute ending. However long it was, the lecture, I fell asleep during it, and my own snoring woke me up. I felt bad for the people sitting in front of me. But, you know, <laughs> when you're cross-cutting between a woman in a concentration camp being executed and a woman on a transatlantic slave ship being raped. You're trying to make Schindler's List and 12 Years a Slave at the same time, <laughs> but it's also a lecture to a university class in Social Psychology 300. What? 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 And she's narrating the lecture with the most disaffected voice possible. This movie's got a weird ass structure because it starts with like the family drama of she loses her husband, then she loses her mother, is reeling from that and needs to, you know, pull herself up. And then it focuses on all the research that she does popping around the world. And then it finally goes into that lecture closeout where she delivers the thesis. Yeah. You've made the comparison to Oppenheimer already. I think the other one that comes to mind sounds even stupider, but I think that makes it even more right is like Cloud Atlas by the Wachowski sisters, where it's like everything rides this single line of thought, right? It's like, you know, all of our lives are connected. They're bound, right? And that's the montage thing. And it has a bit of pop and verve in like a space opera or a science fiction or a fantasy movie. Mm -hmm. It's just so fucking overwrought. But the way that it pulls in the real life history, the fact that these are real things and it's presenting this like it's real wisdom, impossible to take seriously don't give me all this and then show me fucking nick offerman and a make america great again hat <laughs> the whole thing really does remind me of well one there's a lecture scene in black Klansman, which i actually think is one of the best scenes in the movie because of the editing if mm -hmm. anybody remembers that far back but it reminds me of the ending of black Klansman, where it cuts to the rally with the dodge challenger running into the crowd I've been thinking a lot about Ava DuVernay and Spike Lee because I think that they both have a lot of similar tendencies with their didactism. I think both of them come from a politically left, but specifically liberal background. Mm -hmm. But the key difference is that whatever Spike is lecturing you about is coming from a place of such heartfelt, passionate, usually fury, anger, disappointment, <laughs> rage, yeah. that there's an artistic expression that comes out of all of his films. And with her... I just feel like she's trying to teach me something. And in this case, I don't really think that it works because of the material, but it's a career long. I, I just don't connect with what she's trying to do. It would be interesting if she could tap into her anger more, because I know it's got to be in there somewhere. Dispassionate, as you said, for the lecture. Mm -hmm. You know, coming off of Zone of Interest, where it's so purposefully built around that critique and that idea of what if we take this off camera and then just going right into a movie that's like simultaneously the most overwrought Holocaust drama and the most overwrought slavery drama, literally Kuleshov affected together. And then it closes on the worst shot of the year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is a really bad fucking movie. I appreciate the big swing taken, but uh, <laughs> she swung and missed and hit somebody in the eyeball. I think it shows us not just you know, skill-wise, but, like, how close a movie like Oppenheimer could be to being just, like, totally disastrous. Like, yeah. unreadable, everything is out of balance, it's super melodramatic, just doesn't click. Yeah. High-wire act. Mm -hmm. Even worse than that, and the one that I want to close out on, if you have been to a movie theater in the last, like, eight months then or so... Then you've been caught in a trap. God. 
you are entitled to financial compensation. <laughs> Two months ago, everyone at my work was all, have you seen Saltburn? Saltburn. What do you think of Saltburn? Saltburn, the Saltburn. And now this oh, week, Argyle. Uh, Guys, have you seen Argyle? I want you to see Argyle. Is there something to the fact that both of those are British filmmakers, do you think? Emerald Fennel and Matt Vaughn? Possibly. I don't know. There's something about these movies that have just, in a way that totally escapes me, they have captivated the cultural consciousness here. They seem to have a sort of pop as well, which I can't really account for because everyone I know, no one seems entertained by this. Everyone seems to have been annoyed by the trailer. Specifically, even if you were looking forward to it, even if you enjoyed Kingsman and Kick-Ass and all the other Vaughn movies, this literally played in front of fucking every goddamn movie I saw for months. That's it played in front of the zone of interest at AMC. It got to the point where I deliberately started showing up late. <laughs> it frequently was the last trailer that they would play in the real. So even if I would show up late, you were still pretty much guaranteed to catch this one. You know, and even then I would probably still get hit with the bum rally trailer a hundred times. Yeah. So peace. Joe Black Both of those two movies have spectacular songs in their trailers, and it is a real testament, in my opinion, to Elvis's Suspicious Minds and mm-hmm. David Bowie's Let's Dance that I don't want to kill myself when I think about them, given how many times I've listened to those songs. <laughs> but to get into this twisted plot from the twisted mind of Matthew Vaughn. I didn't realize that when he said that it was the twisted mind, what he meant was plot twists. 30 of them, end over end. I'm so sorry. First rule, anyone who says they have a twist in mind, no, they actually don't. That's a lie. But this movie focuses on Ellie Conway, a novelist who writes these successful spy thrillers. And it turns out that her latest spy novel is getting a little too close to real world events. She's attacked on the train by enemy agents and is rescued by another agent who's convincing her that he's a good guy. He's going to help her out. So they go on this globe-trotting quest around the world to try to figure out why they want her and what's up with the fact that her books are so close to reality. And, you know, the whole time, you know, you're just waiting to find out who the real Agent Argyle is, even though when they announced this movie three years ago in the press release (laughs) with the cast listing, they said who Agent Argyle was. So I am personally going to burn Apple to the fucking ground for making me sit through that goddamn trailer a thousand times because I wanted to advertise it as a twist. (laughs) Don't let the cat out of the bag. I I am begging, I'm begging someone to go to Matthew Vaughn, full Mean girl style, and tell him, stop trying to make Kingsman happen. You want so badly to have this fucking world-conquering franchise that petered out after one and a half movies. And are you aware that this is, in fact, connected to the Kingsman universe of characters? Yes, that's why I'm <laughs> Because yes, I'm aware of Why would that Uh-oh. be? Uh-oh. Whoops. Cat's out of the bag. We need to put all of our resources into building a time machine so that we go back and kill the comic book writer Mark Millar. That's where all of this starts. And it won't be done until we end it. Now this Yeah, no, this movie's just awful. The saving grace of it is that sometimes it does a fairly fun set piece, which is done in the Matt Vaughn style, which is just like excessively edited, excessively slow-mo excessively nothing looks like it's actually fucking happening Mm -hmm. any person or personality that you like in this movie like me i'm a big sophia butea fan Catherine o'hara samuel jackson sam rockwell i mean he's been in the wilderness for a while but just good 
God. Right. What a waste of these people. Sam Rockwell and Bryce Dallas Howard, who plays the main character, are trying their hardest, but it's just not working. Yeah. And then you have vacuums of non-cinematic presence, like Henry Cavill and Dula Peep. The aspect of this movie that made me giggle, but I know would make a lot of other people just like, angry is the use of the new Beatles song, Now and Then. Oh my. Uh, (laughs) This is a song that I believe Apple owns the streaming rights to. Apple produced the documentary, you know, the whole background of the song and how they made it with the Peter Jackson crazy Mm -hmm. AI dog shit that he did. Then Apple bought this movie, so they did not produce it, but they bought it. Yeah, which is why it's got that alleged like two hundred million dollar price tag on it, which is yeah. apparently not the real number. Sure, didn't look like it was a fucking two hundred million dollar movie. No, hey. like that whole opening scene was so bad looking. Going down over the roofs on the motorcycle, I was like, why does this look like Sci Fi Channel? <laughs> to be honest, it's because Matthew Vaughn, even though I like some of his movies, has never been a very good director. He was an okay screenwriter who worked with Guy Ritchie, and he made two movies that people liked. He made Layer Cake, which improbably is a really, like, I think that's a banger. And Uh then he got into adapted in comic book properties. Like I said, Mark Millar, he also did a Neil Gaiman movie. But he's Mm -hmm. just never been, like, a talent of any level. But then I I think the Kingsman thing, people liked. People liked that fucking reddity-ass Westboro Baptist church. Again, like, cut to shit, needle Mm -hmm. drop. Just looks really stupid. Bad enough that we have to deal with Guy Ritchie every five to ten business days. But, or you know, like, like Sean on. Levy or David Leitch. Or... Uh, I saw that first Kingsman movie several times because it was so fucking popular. Yeah. It would be on TV all the time. Like, people just love that mm-hmm. movie here. And it was just like, ah. I don't want to get into the weeds too much. I might even just cut this, but I think that Matthew Vaughn is also like quietly one of our ideologically most ugly filmmakers and writers that we have. He comes from a lot of money and is like a British prep school kid. His entire sensibility is like very, 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 very Tory. I don't know if did either of you see the King's Man? Are either of you aware with the fact that the King's Man opens with Ray Fiennes going to a bear concentration camp and like looking over the place? Him and Emerald Fennel sound like a possible match made in hell. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if Vaughn divorces Claudia Schiffer, he can get together with <laughs> Emerald Fennel. Ugh. But yeah, God help us all when we have to deal with Sean Levy Deadpool 3 and David Leach Jurassic World. Yeah. Is that other one that he's doing too? With Ryan oh, Gosling? Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Which has the longest trailer ever made. How is Fall Guy a different movie from Free Guy? Sorry. That's really like that's the same. Bring thing. free guy back, please. Don't for the love of God. My last note about Argyle is that it's longer than Anatomy of a Fall. Why is that? It's 139 minutes, and it feels like 365. I really, at one point, like checked my phone to check the time. Be like, all right, do I have like 20 minutes of this left? And it was like, no, you have an hour and a half left. Oh, okay. I was checking my phone frequently and tried taking a nap, but I couldn't even do that because the AC was blasting so hard <laughs> that it was too cold to sleep. I think Origin hit me a little worse than this one, to be honest, just because I'll forget this. I've already forgotten big snatches of this, but yeah, not good. Not good. Not a good little run of movies here. A bumpy, bumpy ride. I promise I'll watch a good movie sometime. There's just uh, no guarantee on that. For me, I will say it's been a lighter movie year we've only had like a month and change i'm sure that i'll find a groove and throw that off one of the reasons for it has been editing our last couple list episodes of course but also just being a little bit more into reading which i did 
a lot of last year and then like december i didn't read anything so then this year i kind of mm-hmm. started over and was like we're renewed we're in it yeah one of the things that i did read was J.R.R. tolkien's fellowship of the ring first book in his lord of the rings trilogy the reason for that is because cole and i along with our friend morgan are going to be recording some episodes for that although for you listening we'll not hear them for a while this is a long play the long strategy uh but i just wanted to you know that part of that's like that's a long fucking book so there's not (laughs) as much time in your movie watching calendar right another one that i read just before that was the vice consul written by marguerite dura it's actually the second dura novel that i've read this year the other one was the seawall and then kind of late last year in the fall i read one called the easy life or la vie tranquille which is her second book seawall's her third Vice Consul's a little deeper into her career. She wrote that one after writing the screenplay for Rene's Hiroshima Mon Amour, and so had already kind of broken out mm-hmm. across Europe. Hadn't quite broken out in the U.S. yet. Her first book really land over here would be The Lover in 1985, which is quite autobiographical, and it tells the story of a romance that she, Marguerite Duras, basically engaged in when she was about 15 years old with a much older man. And certain themes of her life come up all throughout her written work. She was born in Vietnam at a time when that region was known as broadly French Indochina and was part of their larger colonial experiment. And a lot of her books and a lot of her films, for this reason, I think, take root in the colonial activities of the nation of France, which is her home country. After she was born in Vietnam and grew up, she eventually moved, went to France, and that's where her writing career took off. Really engaging writer, very unique style. If you're familiar with Hiroshima Mon Amour or India Song, which we're talking about today, mm-hmm. there should be no surprise in that. But she is someone who started off as a writer, and I think that it has an indelible impression on how she chooses to make movies, because she doesn't make movies like any other director that I can really think of. Her career is just loaded with very experimentally set up and executed type of work. Mm -hmm. They're often very verbal, but they get away from maybe what you would think of as like being a fictional plot, you know, like here's point A to point B to point C. And they're a little bit more in the moment. The term that I think of a lot with her is incantatory, where she uses a lot of repetitive phrases and builds in this sort of hypnotic way for prose. And so a lot of her books would be like 100 pages long, but they take kind of a while to wade through because they've got this sort of flow to them. And they're very, not necessarily abstract, but they're not always directly connected to some of the signifiers you may be used to in just reading any old book. Particularly the Vice Consul, the book, is split into three different characters, more or less. You have Anne-Marie Stretter, who is the wife of a French ambassador, so what I want to say is a uh, what is the fucking word that I'm looking for here? An ambassador is like a type of... Uh, I, I, politician. Probably good enough for what you mean. Diplomatic figure. Diplomat. Yeah, there we yeah. go. He's a diplomat. Yes. So she is the wife of the French ambassador in Calcutta, and they are these diplomats, but they're kind of figures of France's colonial power in the 1930s, particularly here in India. And then you've also got the vice consul, who is a man that's been disgraced. We'll talk mm-hmm. about him more. And then there's a third character who I just wanted to put a little bit of emphasis on because I think that the book puts more of its emphasis here than the film does, and that is the beggar woman who goes from Savannakhet, Laos, all the way to Calcutta. And so it follows these three figures and the way that their lives both do and do not intersect. 
to form a portrait of this place and time where a very substantial European power is in place, but is kind of rotting. It's kind of falling apart from the inside out. And that's the basis for India Song. Mm-hmm. One of two 1975 mm-hmm. movies starring Duffine Serig in the French language, directed by a woman, whose formalism is just there to, I mean, just completely fucking rewrite the rules of how you make a movie and how a movie operates from scene to scene. The big thing she did here was take away synced sound. None of the voices match the mouths or what's going on, or people talk, but they're off screen, so you only hear their voiceovers. And it's all about crafting this environment where you feel the haze and the smog almost physically coming down on you and on these characters as everything is rotting away. Mm. It's a film about loss of identity in a certain sense. It's set within a kind of colonial environment and there's a kind of sickness. The characters experience a a physical ailment or what we would call depression now. I guess the word is malaise Mm. that these characters exist within. Uh Dura depicts it. Like, they're out of place. They're in a foreign land performing a certain role, representing their culture and advancing their culture within this land to kind of expand the empire, Mm -hmm. but they're out of place. They're lost and kind of ailed by this place. I thought a lot while watching this about how one of the most devastating side effects of colonialism that happened between like the 1700s and the 1900s was the introduction of all these diseases, Mm -hmm. the decimation of indigenous populations populations that occurred simply as a result of introductions of new diseases and bacteria into the ecosystem. And it's kind of like with this movie, these characters are sort of decaying as a product of their own introduction into this ecosystem, like stricken with this sort of decomposition particularly this character of Anne-Marie Stretter, this Delphine Sayrick's character, who it's kind of hard to say the story centers around her because it's not so much that there is a story and it's not so much that there's a central character, but she's depicted and given the most sort of, not even the most screen time, but I I suppose the most screen presence, the most Mm -hmm. focus. And she's the character who's referred to by name the most frequently. Even just in costume and look, she's got the bright red hair. For a lot of the film, she's in a bright red gown. Mm -hmm. She's a contrast. The film is in an abstract way, sort of a depiction of her undoing and ultimate death. It's a depiction of her complete disintegration. And I think from Cole's point, it's viewing that from the outside, not just as like the viewer were on the outside, but overheard gossip type of conversations of -hmm. the people around her kind of talking about the intrigue. Who is this person? What is the deal with her romantic affairs? Yeah. Right. Because she's no stranger to cheating on her husband and all that. And it becomes a vocal talking point throughout the movie. It's often not clear who's meant to be speaking mm-hmm. in a given moment. Like there will be exchanges and shifts in perspective that are just to a certain extent totally interpretable. Like you can't necessarily fully tell all the time. Yeah. There are points when the actors are associated with their given characters. And mm. you can tell that that's Sayri. Mm. This is Lonsdale. But even then, I mean, there are points when it's very Mm. clearly like, okay, that's the vice consul speaking. Yeah. No, no doubt about it. But there are points when that is obscured. It's a little bit ambiguous where it's like, wait, was that Dura herself doing a little bit of dialogue there? You can always tell. I think the beggar woman is pretty clear because one, she's speaking an unsubtitled language, not French. Mm -hmm. So that's always pretty pronounced whenever you can hear her coming up. And usually other characters will remark. So I think you can pretty much ID people, Mm -hmm. but it's foggy. 
to the extent that the film wants you to identify with or resonate with these central characters, it also makes you feel the sense of exclusion and outsiderness. The whole movie is these people being referred to. Yeah. But more than that, people making inferences, projecting and interpreting their movements and the smallest of details, trying to fill in the picture of their life completely from their imaginations. And so there's this total lack of agency that these characters have over their reality. There's a kind of cumulative effect of the film. Homesickness would be too reductive, but just like her sense of not belonging collapses her. Mm-hmm. Well, I think... There's no, so her home would be France, it would be Europe, which I think comes up a little bit in this idea that you're talking about where they're in the wrong environment, which is expressed a lot Mm. through the basic idea of heat, of the sun, how intensely hot it is along the Ganges Mm. in this particular part of India for somebody who is fair-skinned the way that we can see that Seyrig is. But this sense of displacement isn't a new thing. For certain characters, it is. We meet a few characters who it's like, this guy's Austrian. This is his first assignment in Bengal. He's never been here before. Versus Anne-Marie Stretter, as we learn, has been in Asian capitals in some form or another since she was an 18-year-old girl. Mm. She's very much rooted in this life, connected to her marriage into this world. There's nowhere for her to go. She's so unmoored in this whole process Mm. that there is no home. That is no longer a real concept anymore. It's reflected with the vice consul, who in his whole situation, they're like, well, maybe we should send you back to Paris. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. All of these strange, unresolved dissonances, Mm -hmm. whether it's on the formal level between the visual and the audio, or the fact that it's this very European palatial landscape that's sort of situated in the sweltering tropical India, even though you may know that the film itself was shot in France, which is like a meta level. I believe it's the Chateau Rothschild, sort Mm -hmm. of an abandoned and dilapidated palace that used to be owned by a Jewish family. And it was basically vacated after the war mm. and just kind of rotting. It's like green. It's yeah. cracked and growing things. It yeah. looks dead. There's just layers of mismatch. It creates a genuinely disorienting experience. Mm-hmm. It's a movie that's really hard to process in one viewing. I've yeah. only seen it twice. I rewatched it. I'm very glad I did. I didn't just do that, though. I, I rewatched it and then I read through the dialogue separately after the fact because i found myself you can kind of miss it it's so disassociated yeah you're getting fragments of conversations but they also Mm -hmm. feel like they've kind of been chopped up and kind of intermingled as well like you might get a connected conversation or response to people engaging on a particular topic but then you'll abruptly shift to a different topic or maybe even just like what feels like 30 seconds later in the conversation and it's not quite clear whether you've missed anything it's so abstractly presented Sometimes the statements will almost change tense or time period where they're talking about, oh, he was walking through the garden looking at the bicycle. And then they're talking about Anne-Marie Stretter's gravestone and how it mm-hmm. says Anna-Marie Guardian, the lettering has been worn off. Mm-hmm. Like, so they're talking about a point so far into the future from what you're observing that you never really, really have a quite clear sense of time yeah. to when any of this is happening. Or when people are speaking time. Mm. The movie sort of opens with these two girls having an exchange with each other. And they're talking about the woman, Savinaket. And they're also talking about Anne-Marie Stretter eventually. And those two voices almost seem to be disentangled from reality. As if the speaking character is the camera Mm -hmm. or something. 
like a brand new person, the viewer who is learning this for the first time. The whole time you're seeing that conversation unfurl, it's over this footage of the sun setting. So you only have the subtract circle of light going down over the river. So that's the only thing you can latch onto while you hear all this stuff happening and all these descriptions of different characters. And I think if you're keen, and this is not a first watch thing, I don't even know if it's a second, third, fourth watch thing. But if you're keen, you are listening to a woman speak in a language from the South Pacific, from a country like, I don't think that she's from Laos, I actually think she's from Burma, but it's a completely foreign language to any setting or character presented to you in this movie besides this one. And so there's this like melange of ideas that I think ultimately kind of get you thinking back to the idea of French colonialism. Like, why is it that this country from Western Europe has a foothold in Vietnam and a foothold in India. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense. These places are thousands of miles apart. And it's trying to draw out the absurdity of Mm -hmm. that, I think. And the misbegotten nature of trying to govern or even have diplomatic relations with places with such vastly different cultures and languages. But then using that to explore how universally there is a system of haves and have-nots, a system of suffering, malnourishment, death, and disease, wherever Mm. they go. Yeah, there's an absurdity to the movie as well, like the way that it presents colonialist imposition style and architecture, way of living and fashion, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Not just reaching out into all these sorts of countries and we're intermingling with those cultures, but also imposing our weird idiosyncratic cultural quirks and styles into this landscape as if it's just going to kind of work. The piano seems to be a good representation of that, which is, it's so humid, the piano immediately is detuned. Mm. We've brought an instrument that was not from this part of the world for obvious reasons, Mm -hmm. because it doesn't function right here. I think about this a lot with the Australian film Picnic at Hanging Rock, which Uh, has about a thousand different images where it'll be like a clearly British couple having tea time in all of their best vestments somewhere in the outback. And you're like, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? What the hell are you doing there? That's a great reference point as well, because that's kind of a movie about imposing yourself in a place where you don't belong and then the environment sort of swallowing you whole. Yeah. 1975, too. To kind of tackle back to your idea of disease, the key one here is leprosy. The imagery of dust, Mm. the imagery of these incense that are kind of like burning off into these cloudy puffs while they talk about skin flesh exploding. And that connects with the vice consul himself. But leprosy, I think, is such a specifically chosen disease, one, for its imagery, but two, because it's an affliction of the poor. It's an affliction Mm -hmm. of people who don't have enough food, who are malnourished, and it's contagious, but it could never be contagious to these rich white people. And so it's like watching this affliction from on high and either being indifferent to it, unable to do anything about it. And I think that the sickness that you're talking about, Riley, it's almost a spiritual malnourishment mm-hmm. that these people have. It's a spiritual leprosy. Right, because leprosy is such a foreign concept to them. You know, like to them, that's only something that they would read a Bible story or whatever. Right. But then they come over here where they really don't belong, and then they have to reckon with it actually existing and actually afflicting people. Mm. And then taking it to that woman from Savannah the story there. This is in the movie, but I'm pulling it a bit more from the book, which is clearer. I believe the character Michael is writing the story of this woman, but it's like kind of inherently unreliable because she doesn't speak the languages of the places that she goes. So like, how could you ever get a reliable story out of her? Mm -hmm. But she had a child and then gave the child away, just abandoned it 
in this place in Laos, which Stretter sees as a girl. And it makes her despair so much that she tries to kill herself, which is in the movie as well. And it's like this idea of the despair that comes from watching the hardships of others without being able to do anything about it. But like the kind of innately privileged position that this character would be in, they talk about how there's a statistic where the suicides of the white people in this place go up as famine and starvation go up, even though they are not problems that affect that class of people, that race of people. Mm -hmm. So it's just like this real like thorny, nasty thing that I think the movie manages to work through in a way that's so soft and suggestive Mm -hmm. so as to not come across like, you know, all right, here's just like an onslaught of misery. It gets you thinking about these things, Mm -hmm. feeling these things, while focusing so much more on the dull time. Especially now, we have a lot of art, films, documentations of the adverse impacts of colonialism. But this is kind of a movie that makes a point of how toxic it is back on the people who come to those places as well, how ultimately self-destructive it is. You know, how absurd of a concept the tenets of colonialism are Mm -hmm. ultimately destructive in all directions. And especially for a character like Anne-Marie, who's been pranced around from Asian city, Asian port to place to place to place to place, who has no clear national identity beyond that, which she's kind of born with and carries with her, lost and forgotten and diluted, it becomes a sort of shell. One other thing I want to bring up is the formalism of the movie, the way it looks and the way it sounds and the way those things interact specifically. I can think of movies that probably do more tricky things with mirrors. I cannot think of a movie that does as much with a single mirror as this does. <laughs> that mirror is a character. It is like, yes. there are specific moments. I think my favorite one is one of the first moments where you see Anne-Marie interact with the vice consul. They are both in frame, proper, not reflected in the mirror. She comes in over one shoulder, leaves. And the way that the mirror is angled into the room, she leaves the frame on the right, and enters the mirror frame on the left almost instantly, and then walks out of the building through some like open doors, but exits via the mirror. And then he follows, first by leaving the frame, then by walking all the way across the mirror. And then a third character comes across and does that. You overhear that the husband starts talking to the vice console, and then you see Anne-Marie and the second guy, not the vice console, come back and start dancing with each other while he's been interrupted. And you can follow this whole like exchange that they've just had and the way that it's probably like heartbreaking to this piece of shit character. But it all just happens so effortlessly. And there's this almost fantasy element of watching them exit via the mirror mm-hmm. to me. It feels unreal. It feels dreamlike. Yeah. Even a little bit Lewis Carroll-esque. Sure. The mirror, I, I'm, yeah, the mirror is the thing. It's really interesting the way that the mirror simultaneously opens up the space visually, but constricts the characters you have this additional artificial dimension with the mirror in the background but the characters you know as you say when they when they walk off screen they don't really go anywhere because they become on screen in a different way it's a really interesting clever way of creating the sense of going nowhere of being essentially trapped within the space while making it also for the viewer simultaneously feel like this kind of endless you know, expanse of nothingness. It's a vast, empty location, but it's also so restricted. 
I like how, in terms of the set design of the way that things look, sometimes the entire action will be framed in the mirror. And so Mm -hmm. the outsides of the mirror, you'll have a chair and a couple of lamps that aren't even lit. But you're just kind of looking at the set design of the interior of the chateau that, again, just looks dead. It looks forgotten, unoccupied, while maybe watching the faintest, slowest action happen in that mirror. Honestly, the most active thing in this movie, besides a few of the dances, is watching the incense burn and smoke off in the corner because it's such a constant sense of it, in a way, to kind of offset how still mm. everything looks. It also adds, like, a, at least for me, who has burnt plenty of incense in my life, it like immediately adds like an odor element to this whole thing. It's like I can imagine <laughs> the way that this smells, which connects because there is a stench of leprosy and not just leprosy, but burning dead bodies which is something mm-hmm. that is happening. There is a, I keep bringing this movie up because I really like it. I've seen it recently. But there is a kind of zone of interest like we're looking very rigidly inside the lives of these people while some pretty bad stuff is either happened in the past, is happening right outside the window, and characters are talking about the scent of dead bodies being masked by these incense, mm-hmm. not being able to sleep for the sort of anguish of the things that they've experienced. Yeah. And then all of that kind of coming to a head through the character of the vice consul who in Lahore snapped, just flat out lost his shit, shot up his entire apartment, shot himself, open fired on a crowd of lepers, open fired on dogs. And that's why she can't sleep with them. I think that his character is so fascinating. The book is called The Vice Consul. So you can imagine he gets not more prominence. I think I would probably consider him like the main dramatic figure in both the book and the film because he's the source of the conflict. He wants to be with the woman. He can't. But I find it so interesting how he represents this like, oh, we have to deal with this fucking guy. Ah, can you just go away? Like when what he's done is murder and they're just like faintly annoyed by him. They're faintly like, ah, mon dieu. It's just so listless. It's so like Mm -hmm. dispassionate and disinterested. Mm -hmm. I thought I had while watching this is how weirdly relevant the effect of the dialogue felt to contemporary society and specifically the conversations Mm -hmm. that happen around public figures, celebrities, dialogue in this movie and the presentation of it as the sort of off-screen gossip really kind of resonated in an unexpected way on this rewatch. You mentioning the dispassionate disengagement from the sort of material reality of what the vice consul has done and the way that it's discussed feels sort of very true to the end point of all this sort of triviality. It's the disconnect from the actual human suffering because the reality is none of these other colonists give a fuck about lepers. Mm. They don't care. Right. What they care about is the disgrace. What they care about are the optics. And I think a lot of it actually centers around the fact that pulling a little bit from the book again, this character refuses to leave. He refuses to fight the powers that be on his own behalf. He kind of just puts his hand up and says, yeah, I did it. Fuck are you going to do about it? And puts that on them to make a decision. And that almost is more irritating and concerning to them than the death. If he had covered it up, if he had tried to speak out for himself in a way to be like, well, no, I did it because of this and this and this, and they would have been like, okay, fine. We'll let you lay low in Bombay for a little bit. No big deal. But it's his confrontational sort of unwillingness to hide from it that they almost seem more disgusted by than the act itself. It's the Barry Linda thing. It's not that you did the crime. It's that you did it and are parading it around in front of us. It's all honor. 
it's all reputation. There's a point where they're sort of arguing about they don't want him to go back to France because that would make the incident more highlighted. So they just want to kind of relocate him. It almost reminds me of like Catholic priest scandals where mm-hmm. you have some sexual assault case and they're just like, ah, let's just put this dude in another parish. Mm-hmm. Let's just put him somewhere else where nobody knows who he is. I feel like it really says something to the sort of innate tendency towards dehumanization when we're separate from the lives of others and the realities. Mm. It's all, you know, trivia. It's all gossip. That sense with which the human reality of whether it's the person's life we're talking about or the consequences of their actions is all just lost. It's diluted. It's gone. And the whole film to me, in a kind of profound way, is this really dull, continual parade of dehumanized, vacuous musings. Mm -hmm. What presents as a desire to understand what is in reality cheap and self-serving. The cumulative effect of the movie as well, this two hours of just this vapidity in so much of this dialogue. (laughs) It's one of the things that makes the movie so tough. And I think one of the things that makes it such a effective movie to rewatch because you might not recognize how heavily the dryness is just kind of like clouding your brain while you watch it the first time i'll be honest i find this movie really difficult to sit through oh interesting. it's not because i'm bored by it at all it's beautiful to watch and it's fascinating it's doing some really interesting formal things all the time mm. but it's just like this white noise it kind of creates in my head because of the banality of all of it in contrast to you know the the reality of the things that it sort of glides over and alludes to you know Mm -hmm. the the situation with the lepers and the things that the vice consul has done and streeter's suicide attempt the most violent moment of this movie is when the vice consul explodes at this ball basically he's been rejected there's this whole setup where Anne marie streeter takes her lovers to the islands, which are on the delta of the Ganges, basically just a place away from their main chateau. And it's something that her husband, the ambassador, like rubber stamps. He's like, yes, go over there and do this. And the vice consul, who is a virgin and has never been with any woman ever in his entire life, wants to be with her. He says this whole thing about, like, he's in love with her. His outburst is so fucking jarring in the context of the movie as somebody watching it but what becomes jarring to it over time is the way that no one gives a fuck no one reacts they're all just sort of standing there waiting for him to stop like man that's kind of annoying yeah there's that whole veneer of upper class politeness that moment and the way that it scans the way that people react or don't react to it is kind of a moment of comedy i would say oh for Uh, sure in in a perverse way too particularly there's a point. So he's yelling in their house. He gets kicked out of the house. One of the speakers, one of the disembodied voices, like he's locked outside. And then you hear him still. And then he gets over to like his house across the way. And then you hear him still. <laughs> like he's just still fucking hollering. And it gets a little bit funny over time just because it's so pathetic. He just won't yeah. stop yelling. Really, really, really going for it. It's a fearless performance, I think, in a way, because it's such a scoundrel of a character so detached from any sense of like anything that you would ever like or admire it's just an ugly performance Mm. in a way that's sort of entirely about your vibe because he doesn't speak it's all sort of this disembodied vocal performance Mm. and so he has to kind of convey all this just through his bearing and his manner but it's very effective it's very off-putting i think that 
third character of the beggar woman is sort of the figure of the written version of this that I think doesn't come up as much in the movie because she's not a seen character. She's never on camera. She's overheard and she's referred to by other characters, but that's it. It does an interesting thing because it means that you have to work a bit harder to grasp the parallel that is trying to be drawn between this woman and her experiences and what Strider is going through. Not just specifically their path from Southeast Asia into India, but also like this idea of abandoning your youth, being thrown away from your home culture and displaced in a spot where no one really understands you, even though Strutter obviously has other people that speak French, is just sort Mm -hmm. of being alone, being vacant, being isolated, detached from one's own duty, adrift. And defined by like the sort of like loss of the children on the part of the beggar woman, which I think is just kind of like an implicit like womanhood, marriage, motherhood, all that kind of stuff. What's interesting comparing from Dura's writing, not just of the vice consul, but in general, is that her writing is very internal a lot of the time. Like if you take the easy life, it's kind of split in two halves. The first half is very domestic. And then the second half, the main character goes off to this like spa island resort. And then it just suddenly goes fully 100% inside of her head. It's how is she perceiving things? How are things making her feel? What is she witnessing? What does it mean that she's witnessing it? Is it reliable that she's witnessing it? And what's interesting about India's song and the medium of film is that it all now has to be external. And I think that she rises to that challenge in a way that's very fascinating. She totally like breaks away from how she writes in order to capture a similar kind of like lyrical, hypnotic flow, but external through the visual, through what you're seeing. I think there's kind of an interesting thing where like that overheard and desynced audio kind of feels like maybe you're reading dialogue off of the page and then the visual kind of becomes like what you're imagining when you're reading the dialogue. You're imagining the characters interacting while hearing it. it you know, there's just this like dissociative quality, but also an associate, you know, like they're dissociated, but naturally they're also linked together. And it's just fascinating. It is fascinating to watch her blend these mediums together in such a creative way. I don't really have a clean segue for this, but I just want to shout out the music of the film. Oh, yeah. The motif, really, more than mm-hmm. the music. I guess I'll use the segue of it's something that the book cannot do. Right. The book does not have the benefit of sound. Mm. And so you don't get to hear India's song. Yeah. It's a beautiful melody, gorgeously composed. It has a sort of sense of wistful sadness to it the first time you hear it. And it's kind of weird how throughout the film, as it goes on and you hear it again and again, it kind of acquires the same sort of numb emptiness. Oh, my emptiness is the wrong word, but it's kind of just the same sort of numb, like triviality i suppose the presentation of the actors as well as you see them for the first time and they are living breathing human beings but they're so still their presentation is often so diorama like that over time it feels as though the film itself kind of dehumanizes them like showroom dummies and the music in a strange way kind of has the same effect ultimately by like by the end of the movie i feel a lot less feeling that's being evoked and that's not a bad thing Mm -hmm. that's kind of works to the effect of the film yeah it's sort of if you look at it as an exploration of ennui to just put a certain term on the mood or what these characters are going through i think it undercuts the significance of their emotional state I think that's something that Cole wrote about before I ever read the movie was this idea that like, so you got this vice consul of Lahore who's hooting and hollering, pained and all this other stuff. 
but it's not like a real pain. Yeah, who wants the controller? I didn't get what I want. It's a tantrum. You don't connect to this like real human emotion of like, oh my god, I'm so disconnected. It's like, yeah, well, you're disconnected because you're the ambassador of Calcutta. Right. You don't belong here. Like your mere presence here is a violation. You could leave. You could get on a plane. This is not a wages of fear type scenario. I know Yorgo Slanthimos loves this movie oh, so I'm much about, sure. it that about it that it reminds me of him. I don't think I had much of a precedent for the first time I saw this movie. Mike D'Angelo's review is kind of the one that first put that link to Jean Dielman in my head because he made the connection of the two 75 directors. But there's a lot of difference. Like If you take Dielman, that's so process-oriented. Even though it's kind of mundane, you can follow this very clear structural idea of the day one, day two, day three. You can clearly relate it to your own life of, well, I mean, I got to make dinner and I got to wash the dishes and I got to go to the store. The daily routine aspect just pops off and you understand it. This is incomprehensible in a sense, but I think that that incomprehensibility is such a great symbol for like the meaninglessness of what they're doing. They're at a ball, but no one dances because it's too hot. They're on this colonial operation, but what do they do? They sit around, they fuck other people's wives. Like, are you even doing any foreign policy? Is there any sort of function to this? Because there doesn't seem to be. It's so detached from process. You're there to do diplomacy, but you're corralling inward with your countrymen. They're avoiding the sunlight. Mm -hmm. I think of a line from Chinatown, which is when Evelyn first asks Jake, what did you do in Chinatown? And he says, as little as possible. And that's this, from Stratter's point of view, who is supposed to be this kind of like symbol of humanitarian white lady who is totally feckless and just cannot achieve what she wants to achieve in that regard. It's like, well, I do as little as possible because nothing I do has any consequence. It's I do as little as possible because I don't want to be responsible and I don't want to reflect badly on me. I do as little as possible because it's hot and I don't feel good. And so it's just this like continuous set of excuses for stagnation. It really highlights the absurdity of the entire colonial project especially in a way that makes me think a lot of Claire Denis down oh, the line sure. and the way that she examines, you know, like in White Material, for example, or Chocolat or mm. Beautreville yeah. even. Mm. Just the absurdity of what are we doing here? Beautreville is a good mention because, you know, the sweltering heat, just kind of standing in it <laughs> yeah, and dying in it. It's got the same sense of hypnotic rhythm, but it's a little bit like paced because you're going through these military drills, right? You're like, yeah. boom, 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 boom. In India's song, it's so much more static even than that. Like, you don't even get to the point where you would work up a sweat from your vigorous activity. You're just laying on the carpet, (laughs) breathing. It's 4 a.m. It started raining. You're like, oh, thank God. Yeah. (laughs) This is an incredible movie to watch in the summertime if you live in Texas, I assume, for you as well, down south, where it's just like sweltering. It's very hot here, yes. Martel, La Cienega. That's the other uh, one. Just like yeah. super sweaty, fucking sweltering, yeah, hot absolutely. movie. Zama, I think, is probably a little bit more subject matter. This is definitely the kind of movie where watching a woman's chest rise and fall is the closest you'll get to an action set piece. Yeah. <laughs> the cut to the breast is like, whoa! Yeah. Holy yeah. shit! Every edit of this movie is pretty jarring, or any of the times where you get like a tracking shot outside the chateau at night is like, whoa whoa <laughs> we're flying yeah and just the use of light or the way that these scenes are lit is so effective like so many of the interior scenes are just 
dark, you know, morose. Cole, how did you watch this this time? Oh, so this I watched on my Blu-ray. I got yeah. the set from Criterion. Me too, with Baxter, Vera Baxter. Yep, I kind of watched that at some point. It's a challenging film. Really? This lady makes challenging movies? I Like, to the point that I didn't get the gimmick of it. Uh, and I won't spoil it. You should just watch it and let me know what you think. There's like a key, there's an audio element to that movie that I did not understand the first time. Mm. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> You'll see what I mean. Yeah, no, I watched it while the atmospheric river was, you know, drowning all of Los Angeles, <laughs> which felt oddly appropriate. Glazed over, stuck inside. Exactly. I was curious because the last, this is the second time that I think I've watched it on the Blu ray, maybe mm-hmm. just the first, I can't remember. But Previously, it was on the Criterion channel, and I also used to own a DVD of this, which was a Canadian DVD, so it's French language, but it had no English <laughs> subtitles. And it's interesting how the picture is updated. I think in the DVD version, it's like even more kind of like sour yellow lighting. To kind of go back to Riley's point, there's like just this rotted cadaver look to everything, like jaundiced. I do remember that on the DVD, which is how I saw it for the first time. And it's still there. I think it's just toned down a little bit. I think the new version of it actually looks nicer. Yeah. It's a little bit less aggressively kind of colored. Rated. Yeah, no, the restoration is incredible. I was really thinking about it in the scenes. It's early on when she's just like walking with her two companions down the stone stairwell. Mm. Just like how much clearer that looks than any previous time that I've watched it. Yeah. And the fogginess doesn't hurt when you're watching those older versions of it. There is that like sense. I just think they probably overcooked it a little bit on that restoration right there's a movie that i recently watched chess of the wind from 1976 it's an iranian film that Mm -hmm. has i think some key aesthetic similarities to this movie would make an interesting pair they're about totally different fucking things and operate on totally different wavelengths they're not that similar but there's a visual similarity to them in terms of like the objects that they put on screen and the static nature of some of the compositions that i think is an interesting comparison but this is a movie that kind of like begs that question for me because it's there isn't anything exactly like it really the closest stuff is dura's other films the other things that she's directed and probably hiroshima monomore but like hiroshima monomore is like one thousand times more active than this yeah we're walking all around the city and everything yeah this is a bit more of a reach, but I guess I'm just following the Renee. I was just thing. about to say, yeah. You know, the interior and last year in Marion Bird. The feeling of the spaces, that's a little more surreally stylized. Seri, also, yes. Mm-hmm. She's got one of the coolest fucking filmographies of all time. <laughs> like, especially in the 70s, Ackerman, Dura, Louis Buñuel there for Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Yeah. Renee, as we were just talking about there with Marion Bed. Demi for Donkey Skin. Yeah. I say this in an endearing way, but she's a great sort of anonymous bourgeois woman. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Yeah, I suppose more so in the Buñuel movies. That kind of like disaffected, kind of <laughs> detached. And then she just happened to channel that kind of strength that she has into what would end up being one of the most incendiary performances of the second half of the 20th century. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I think there's just a little bit more meat on the bone of the Dealman performance as compared to this, just by design. Yeah. yeah. This is a static character. Because that she is the whole movie. Right. Every second is her. And like the object of affection here. Yeah. But to do them in the same year, they're just a one-two punch of such fascinating, incredible tastes <laughs> by her. <laughs> I was also just looking here. She's also got, you know, your stolen kisses, Truffaut, Agnes Hardest, oh, yeah. Turk. She's yeah. just worked with yeah. all of them. Yeah, that's pretty much what I got. 
fascinating movie, fascinating writer, an author who I want to delve more into because I think that her style is really interesting. This movie hit me so hard when I first saw it that I like immediately was like looking high and low for every Dura film mm-hmm. that I could find because I just think that I think I've already pretty much said it. Just the blend is really interesting. And as somebody that kind of comes from a more literary background, it's fascinating, one, to see the blend, but two, to see an author who so willingly is like fuck text. You know, who is not, I got to keep every letter, every plot line, but gives you a more interesting sense of how I'm going to translate language into image that I think only really could have come about from a filmmaker who was probably like a little bit after the French New Wave, but like right on time for most of like the left Mm -hmm. bank, René, Varda, Rivette type of filmmakers who were like really fucking pushing the envelope, particularly in blending together in Combining these different mediums like Chris Marker and the essay and yeah. things like that, just pushing things more towards literary forms, theatrical forms, things that were outside the bound of like what Godard and Truffaut were cooking. Right. And she pushed the envelope so hard, she ripped it in half, basically, yeah. with this one. I still think this is probably the most compelling thing that I've seen. Like, it's just such a brilliant blend. It's so extreme. It yeah. really stands out about mm-hmm. it. It's just how extreme it is. Yeah. And what it does. That's probably why it's so attractive and so fun to talk about and so heralded, I guess, among her works yeah. is just how far it goes with all the stuff you've been saying. I think another few, I'll just shout out a few. Natalie Granger is a few years before this little surprise appearance by Gerard Depardieu. Jean Moreau plays one of the main characters in that one, but that's like a very sort of listless early Ackerman type of like just sitting around the house. La Nivere Night is a very interesting little experimental film about people using like phone lines from the German occupation to connect with each other in the late night streets of Paris. And then Baxter Vera Baxter, which we mentioned. Now it's fucking difficult to describe. Baxter Vera Baxter is a movie that you watch when you think like India Song is not testing my patience enough. It's not pushing me far enough outside of my comfort zone. I need more. So yeah, this is obviously like the key entry point but i think that if you're interested there's a lot of rewarding material to go through both written and filmed by this writer and director wonderful fantastic challenging film Mm -hmm. well thanks riley for coming on i'm really happy that you came on one of these days i'm gonna get you on here for some junk i would invite you on here for like a western i think it would be a nice challenge for me to talk about some junk yeah i love talking about junk on here that's some of my favorite recording material we're like, we got to get Morgan on here for like some Taiwanese new wave movie. We got to yeah. get Riley on here for like one of the horror <laughs> movies we do in October. Yeah. Switch it up. For sure. No, this has been great. Cole, thank you as always. Of course. Thank you guys so much for listening. I think the next thing that we're talking about is going to be Dune Part 2. Yeah. Looming over the horizon like a big worm. Popcorn buckets as far as the eye can see. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No comments. Everyone say a prayer for your theater employees. Yeah. Well, we look forward to it. Thank you guys all again for listening. Bye, everybody. Ciao.